0: But I love that uh, that account of Pentecost that we're going to be studying today, and, and there's a skeptic, you know, this, supposedly the Bible's talking about these miracles that happen, the one skeptic says, oh, I don't believe any of that stuff, they're just drunk, and then Peter says, well, no, no, it's nine o'clock, you, you can't start drinking at nine o'clock, right? To which Kenny told me a buddy has once said, if you're going to drink all day, you've got to start in the morning, right? Otherwise you're not going to drink all day. <laughs> But, you know, I think from no matter how much evidence you have, what we're looking at in this series is that we're all going to have questions. There's going to be moments you say, I don't know if I believe that. And maybe you heard that back part about, you know, the end of time and the blood turning, the moon turning to red. And you're like, man, that sounds weird. That's like alien abduction stuff or something. you tell me I have to believe that to be a follower of God? I think all of us have questions. And here at Horizon, we encourage doubt because it's when we voice our concerns, it's when we voice our doubts that we can begin to find answers. But the Bible does give factual answers to the questions we have. And God says that he is big enough to take whatever your questions are, whether you're struggling with why God loves bad things to happen in your life, whether you're wondering whether or not the Bible's really true, whether you wonder, why well, now Jesus probably lived, but I'm not sure he's the son of God. God invites each one of us to engage with him, to wrestle with him through our doubts, to find out who he really is. This next song speaks to that very idea. I think that's a great question for all of us to ask, because, God, if you're big enough, tell me who you are. I just, I've got some questions I need answers to. And in a serious Jewish Jesus, we have looked at the idea that all of us want God to show us who he is and, and maybe tell us what's real or what's true, well, I like that song I encountered. And that the festivals Jesus, that Moses set up way back in the Old Testament, these festivals were God's show and tell. They were evidence we could look at to show us who he was and to tell us what God wanted for our life so we didn't have to just wander around without any evidence. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at some of that evidence and begin to see, is the Bible reliable? Is Jesus really the one sent from God? And how would we know if that's true? By looking at the Feast of Pentecost. There's a Jewish scholar who's writing and explaining what Pentecost is, and I'll use her words. And here's what she says. She's explaining in Judaism 101. The period of Passover to Shavuot, which is also known as as Pentecost, rather. So from Passover to Pentecost is a time of great anticipation. We count each of these days from the second day of Passover to day of Shavuot. 49 days or seven full weeks. Hence the name of the festival, Penta for 50. See the counting of the Omer. The counting reminds us of the important connection between Passover and Shavuot. Passover freed us physically from bondage, but the giving of the Torah on Shavat redeemed us spiritually from our bondage to idolatry and immorality. Shavat is also known as Pentecost because it falls on the 50th day. However, Shavat has no particular similarity to the Christian holiday of Pentecost, which occurs 50 days after the spring holiday. Now, why does she say this? Well, because she knows that if what was said by Moses really did align 1,500 years later to an exact day, an exact time, an exact hour when God did something else, the evidence would be so clear that this event had predicted that event 1,500 years in advance. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at that evidence. And we're going to do two things. We're going to play the odds and we're going to run the numbers. Because if you are investigating faith, it is not the absence of evidence. Let me say it again. Faith is not the absence of evidence. That's called ludicrousy when you believe something that's not true. We're going to run the numbers on the facts, and we're going to play the odds that all these things that God predicted in advance could have occurred 1,500 years later as evidence or facts to put your faith or belief or confidence in. We're going to look at Moses' Pentecost, which he's describing, or Shavat, and then we're going to look at Jesus' Pentecost. And see if the two align. To do that, we're going to look at four things. The number 50, the number 3, fire, and the number 3,000. So start with me in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah. They were written by Moses sometime around 1500 B.C. Now, we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls that we have you know, physical copies of this at least to 250 B.C., many even before that. But just to let you know, we have actual evidence that this occurred hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. So keep that in mind. The first number that we come across is the number 50. This is what Pentecost means. Penta for 50. It's a countdown, a 50-day countdown from Passover to Pentecost. Let me tell you what that means. So when the people were in bondage to Egypt... The, the last sort of straw before they were released into liberty, into freedom, was that a Passover lamb had to die. And when that Passover lamb died, the, the Pharaoh said, Get out of here! And all the people went into, into liberty and really began the first free nation in the world. But then they started counting. And it was 50 days from that moment that Moses went up to the, ten, to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments And he brought down on the 50th day the commandments and teaching people how to live freely. The basis of our moral law, the basis of our judicial system today is built on Roman law and Greek law, which is all built on the Mosaic law that came down at Pentecost. So it's 50 days from Passover, the time of forgiveness, to Pentecost, the time when the word came down. Now, this has been so significant in our system in America so significant. In fact, here's what it says in Leviticus when God was explaining this 50. He says, you shall count for yourself from the day after Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord and the priest will wave them before with the bread and the first fruits as a wave offering before the Lord. So what he's saying is. Fifty days later is a significant day. It's a way of saying, God, I'm trusting you to bring down from heaven that which I need. Now, originally it was for the Ten Commandments. But then that festival continued to be celebrated after the commandments to remember that moment. And now it was 50 days you would be praying for God to send down from the heavens rain for your harvest. Imagine for 50 days you're like, man, God, I really need you. God, I really need your help. It was a, a habit you would build into your life. To remind yourself to depend on God, to thank God, to be grateful to him for his blessings. And what a great habit to have in your life. Just sort of a reminder for 50 days to be more grateful. A reminder for 50 more days, hey, I need some help here. 50 more days, hey, if my career is going to go where it needs to go, I need some help from upstairs. It's a 50-day habit that occurred every year. Now this was so significant, this comes from the book of Leviticus, that in our nation, America, we actually took a verse from Leviticus and put it on our Liberty Bell. So if you've ever been up to Philadelphia, we have a Liberty Bell, and it was used to commemorate a 50th year celebration. And if you look at the top of the Liberty Bell, up in the the top section of the metal, it actually says, there's the L-E-V in the middle." Leviticus 25.10, proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all of its inhabitants. Because our founders realized... That the, the basis of the rule of law, which we have as a nation, the basis of liberty, which we experience as Americans, came all the way back from Pentecost, from the ideas that Moses brought down from the mountain. Very significant. So that's the first number, the number 50. And he said "The significant ha- things will happen 50 days after a Passover feast on the calendar. The next number we look at is the number 3 again this is moses talking moses is the number three significant i want you to prepare for the third day the third day is significant and i want you to prepare for it the lord said to moses go to the people consecrate them today and tomorrow let them wash their clothes and be ready for the third day on the third day something important is going to happen the lord will come down from the mountain in the sight of all the people So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people. And they washed their clothes. And he said to them, be ready for the third day. Then it came to pass on the third day. So this is way back in 1500 BC. God said, I do significant things on the third day. Keep that in mind. Prepare for it. Plan for it. Be ready for it. Now, if you were predicting something 1500 years in the future... I might do some generic, you know, 1,500 years from now, people will gather together and do something significant, right? Like a fortune cookie. But this is down to the hour, the day, the specific he's talking about here. Something significant will happen on the third day that you need to look out for. And these are like signposts pointing to something in the future. In the future will be the ultimate Pentecost, the ultimate 50-day countdown, the ultimate three-day countdown in the future. So look for it to which many folks, and we've had several rabbis on stage here as we've dialogued the difference between the the message of Jesus and the message of the Bible. And over those years, many of them have said, hey, um, Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus is not to be a Jewish person at all. I'm like, well, Jesus is Jewish, and his his whole message is Jewish. And they would say that the Messiah was never meant to be someone who died. He was meant to be a reigning king. And yet, if you read in the I think it was the New York Times. They've done several articles on a scholar by the name of Israel Knoll. He just uncovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls that actually at the time of Jesus' birth and his ministry, the the theme, the the teachings written down in the Dead Sea Scrolls we have copies of is that people very much expected a Messiah who would die. By reading their Old Testament, they got a clear picture that the Messiah should be a suffering servant and he would be a reigning king. Now, if you talk to most folks today, they say, well, I don't believe that now. But he's saying, yeah, but the folks who studied the Old Testament at the time of Jesus clearly came to that conclusion. Here's what he says in his article. Dr. Israel Knoll explains the various Jewish theories about the Messiah, including the idea of a Messiah, the son of David, who will be a reigning king on earth like King David was. But he also described that during that time, a Messiah was a son of Joseph who would be rejected, left for dead, but who would eventually reappear and save not only the nation of Israel, but the world, like Joseph did in the book of Genesis. That's from the book, The Messiah Before Jesus. So Here's what he's saying. The facts are, and we have copies of these scrolls, that the thinking at the time, based on Jewish studies of the Jewish Old Testament, was that there should be a Messiah who should suffer, die, reappear, and save the world. That these were signposts aiming forward pointing to something okay hold those thoughts and we'll add another one another significant symbol god uses is that of fire that at the original pentecost there was fire involved fire would consume the dead sacrifice you would bring your sacrifice you'd, you'd sacrifice it for god for forgiveness and he would send fire to consume the dead sacrifice to say you're forgiven something perfect died for you so we'll put that one up in fact, this is used several times in the old testament at Pentecost and other festivals. Here's a couple verses behind me. It came to pass on Pentecost on the third day. That there were thunderings. Lightnings. A thick cloud on the mountain. The sound of the trumpet was very loud. So all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Mount Sinai was completely in smoke. Because the Lord descended upon it like fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked. So, so this moment in time had quakes. It had noises and it had fire. And God will use this image of fire several times in history. So let's move forward. In the book of Leviticus, fire came out from the Lord and consumed the sacrifice. Now let's jump forward to nine hundred and fifty BC. Solomon is dedicating the temple, and sure enough, God does the same thing. It says fire comes down and consumes the burnt offering. So here's my point. It's national treasure time. We're looking for the hints and the clues. So the clues are there's this pattern of Pentecost, of fire being involved. There's this pattern of God's work of the number three being used. There's a pattern of the number 50 being used. To which you might say, well, Chad, this is why I don't take the Bible seriously. You want me to believe that fire is coming down from heaven and jumping out of buildings? This is exactly why I hear you talking, but I can't believe a word of it. Because the idea that there's fire coming from heaven down just seems ludicrous to me. That is the most unscientific, irrational, you know, check your brain at the door kind of thing I've ever heard. But I want to show you that there are scientific reasons and forces that can actually create a pillar of fire that God led the people in. There are scientific principles that make that possible. I'll show you one small example and then some large ones. In a forest fires today, so if you... uh, some of the forest fires they have, especially out west in Colorado, one of the biggest problems they have is related to air currents. You can have a small fire formed, and as that small fire is formed, what happens is the wind current that occurs around different trees begins to create a vortex that makes that fire go up even higher. It turns it into a pillar. And it doesn't take very much of that wind current for that fire to turn into a pillar. See, here's a small verse that jumped right up. The wind current produces that. So it is actually scientifically possible to make a pillar of fire. Now, here's what I'm saying. If Chad can figure this out, (laughs) isn't it philosophically rational to say that an all-powerful God could figure out how to make a pillar of fire? Now, again, this is a small one. So I'm going to make you a larger one and show you what that would look like. Because I was going to do this live, but I didn't want to lose my eyebrows. This is a... uh, And don't try this at home. These are experts on YouTube. Don't try this at home. (laughs) But notice, now they're going to make a larger version of this. They're going to put a larger fire in a metal piece with fans going around it. You're going to see the same thing. Once the wind currents occur a certain way, it changes from a small bonfire into a pillar of fire that jumps 10, 20 feet in the air. So here's the point this doesn't prove the Bible's you know, true, but it does say, wow, what the Bible's describing, we can actually see evidence of. Now here's a larger one. In Kentucky, they actually filmed a live one. This was a fire that had been burning out there. The wind current in this little cove forms this giant pillar of fire skyrocketing into the air. Look at that thing 80, 90 feet. So here's my point. If you're skeptical about the Bible, and you just, I hope just for a moment you went, I sound like a fairy tale. Oh my goodness, that's actually possible? It's actually possible. These are evidences that point us to some future event, not 1500 BC, some future event where that would be significant. Let me give you one more number as we continue our our quest here. The number is 3,000. So God is up getting the ten, Moses is up getting the 10 commandments from God. He's on his way down and God says, "I love my people. I want to have a relationship with my people. I want you to learn not to do a ritual, or go to church, or go to a building. I want you to learn to love me, and I want to love you. I want, love me with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. That's what the Bible's about. Friendship, a relationship with me. I want to marry you." And he's on his way down from the mountain to say, "Here's our marriage vows." Here's our relationship. We're starting this new life together. And as he comes down the mountain, 50 days since Passover, 50 days since the Egyptian revolution, the people have already said, man, it took way too long. Who knows? The guy's probably dead up there. And they've already traded the God who rescued them for a big fat cow. Well, sure, God did these miracles. Sure, he rescued us. But, you know, it, who knows? It's been 50 days. Why don't we make a new God? Let's, in a fashion, a big fat cow. They break off their gold earrings. They receive the gold from their hand. He fashioned it and engraved with engraving tool. He made a molded calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, that he had built an altar before him. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, today is a feast of the Lord. Now, honestly, if you were God, wouldn't you be offended? You just spent all this time trying to display your power, talk about your love, your affection. You want a relationship. You want a long-term plan. You want to be in a covenant marriage relationship with your people. And they have traded you for a cow. I mean, this is offensive. I mean, I don't care who you are. Nobody wants to be traded out for a cow. And so Moses comes down, and like God's like, go down and talk to the people. They've traded me for a golden cow, and oh my goodness. And he says, they've corrupted themselves. And in corrupting themselves, 3,000 people die that day. So again, this is all Pentecost. 3,000 people die that day. So it's tragic. This will be cited for years in the Bible. Of 3,000 people died that day, it should have been a day of rejoicing, instead it was a day of death. And all of these, again, are signposts pointing to something in the future. So now let's talk about what's going to happen 1,500 years later. It's now 33 A.D. Jesus been crucified on the Feast of Passover, by the way. We have records from Jewish historians, Greek historians. We have archaeological evidence supporting, not just what the Bible says, that Jesus died on the Feast of Passover in Jerusalem. Fifty days later is the Feast of Pentecost. Now, we have seven, we have more than seven, we have seven scrolls that have been found with eyewitness accounts of what occurred here. Matthew is one, Mark is one, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, there's others. As well as we have other historians like Josephus, a Jewish historian, who gives an account of what occurred here. And many people say, well, that's circular reasoning. You can't use the Bible to support the Bible, that's circular. Well, let me address that for a moment. There was a scroll that they found called Matthew. There was a separate scroll found of Mark, and they give the same account of what occurred. Then they found a separate scroll from John and a separate one from Luke. The fact that somebody duct taped them together doesn't make that circular reasoning. That makes it convenient, right? That makes it convenient. So instead of having to go find these scrolls, they're all together. So it's not circular reasoning. But even if you don't take that account, there's lots of evidence. In fact, William Ramsay was a, a Scottish archaeologist. He began to study Asia Minor, the area of Turkey and the area that, uh, that describes the beginning of the church. He was a bit of a skeptic, and he began to read Luke, the writer of Luke and Acts, and see that Luke made claims about where things were and how they got there and the topography of the land. And he said, my goodness, I started using the Bible, Acts, the book of Acts, as a historic book for my archaeological finds, because this guy was dead on. Here's how he says it. Luke, he's a Scottish, Luke is a a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. He is uh, possessed of the true historic sense. In short, this author should be placed among the very greatest of historians. They're magically delicious. (laughs) So here's my point. Here's a skeptic who is a historian and archaeologist who said when he read the book of Acts, Written by Luke, who wrote the book of Luke, he said, this guy is teaching factual history. I say that because the account we're about to read about what happens at Pentecost comes from Luke. So here's what happens in Luke. The first thing we discover is that it has been 50 days. But we're not counting down to the commandments. Now it's been 50 days, and we have a countdown to the church. Exact number of days... And the exact festival to the exact festival predicted 1,500 years in advance. 50 days. Here's what it says in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come. Go back one. Had fully come. Well, there's been lots of Pentecost. It happens every year. It's saying, but this is the fully come one. In other words, all the other Pentecost were pointing to this one. All those clues, all that evidence was saying, this is the one you've been looking for right here. And instead of being a countdown to commandments, it's a countdown to the church. Now, even a casual reading, Rodney Stark is a skeptic a sociologist. Uh, there's other historians who would say, my goodness, something happened around 33 A.D. at the Feast of Pentecost. The Roman Empire turned upside down. There was a new ethic of generosity never seen before. A new ethic of caring for the poor, never seen before. There was a new ethic of, of caring for, for, for infants and the fanicide and the sanctity of life never seen before until this moment. There was a revolution of generosity. There was a revolution of people feeling forgiven. All occurred right here. So there's history saying something happened on this day, fifty days after Passover, predicted fifteen hundred years in advance. Peter gets up to speak, and he doesn't just speak at any particular moment. He's actually speaking at the third hour. And why the third hour? The Jews uh, begin their clock at 6 a.m., so the third hour is 9 a.m., which is why in the video he said, we can't be drunk, it's only 9 a.m. You know, beer, it's not just for breakfast anymore. So it's the third hour, and on the third hour, Peter is where? Peter is Jewish, Peter is at the temple at morning sacrifice. I got a chance to visit there. Here's a a picture of uh, the temple. So they were at the temple. And as they are at the temple, which they referred to as the house. So they were at the house. On the very hour. On the very day. Fifty days after the event. A time when people used to... Here's what Pentecost meant. It meant... Fifty days after the time of forgiveness, we trust God to bring down that which we most need, the law. Now that there are a time where they're counting down 50 days to which God would bring down that which they most needed. But it's not the law. It's the power of his spirit comes upon them. And Peter stands up. He said, these men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. Men of Israel, hear the words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst. As you yourself also know, him being delivered by the predetermined purpose or determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. He knew it in advance. You have taken by lawless hands, crucified him, put him to death, whom God raised up on what day? He raised him up on the third day. Remember Moses saying, prepare for the third day. Be ready for the third day. God does amazing things on the third day. And and, and he's saying, that's exactly what happened. On the third day, just as was predicted, God rose from the dead. This happened. Now, now you might say, well, why doesn't God show us evidence today? I mean, maybe if God came on the TV or showed up at the Super Bowl and said, hey, here I am, I'd finally believe. Here's what I'm telling you. This was the Super Bowl. There's three events in the Roman Empire that two million people traveled from all over the world to Jerusalem. So at the ancient version of Super Bowl, millions of people packed into one city in one place, most of them coming to temple at that very hour is the moment God sent down and said, This is it. I am here. And this fire comes down, and there's earthquakes, and there's this incredible event that sociologists and history tell us changed the world, and we're here today because of it. And it happened on the third day. And Peter preaches a big message about why the third day is important. But did you know there also is a significance of the fire? While in the Old Testament, fire consumed the dead sacrifice, it's at this day, at this hour, at this moment, that fire comes down from God, but instead of consuming a dead sacrifice, it rests on every person who is a follower of Christ God says it when the day of Pentecost had fully come they were all with one accord in one place and suddenly there came a sound remember that sound from Moses talked about a rushing wind remember the wind that Moses talked about and it filled the whole house and they called the temple the house where they were sitting right there in those steps I just showed you then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire but it didn't consume them, it sat upon them, and they were filled with the Spirit of God. Instead of the fire consuming the dead sacrifice, the fire now rests or consecrates or sits on the living sacrifice. Which is why Paul says in Romans that when you become a follower of God, you become a living sacrifice. Now what does that mean? That means, here's, even if you don't believe in the Bible, let me tell you why you'd want to. If you become a follower of Christ, you don't just do rituals and and obey rules. No, you have a relationship with God, and His Spirit comes and lives in you. You now know God is with you no matter what. You now know that you're never alone. You know that because He is with you, He is living on you and with you, that He can work all things together for good in your life. You know you have access to His strength, His power. This is what's offered here at the fire as it comes and rests upon us as living sacrifice from God. But now here's where it gets good. So then after Peter preaches this little message, hey, we crucified the person God sent, but he rose him from the dead. You all know this. You can check my facts. There's two million of us here. We were all here. We have eyewitnesses that saw Jesus walking around. Peter, the twelve, over 500 people at one time. Go talk to them. There's the eyewitnesses right there. Go talk to them. Fact-based faith he's preaching. And it's so overwhelming that 3,000 people are baptized. And with that, many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And guess how many were baptized? Three thousand. Were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine, fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. What a coincidence! <laughs> who would have thought that that exact number was baptized? That, that exact number is who came forward. To which I always thought to myself, yeah, but how do you baptize 3,000 people? I mean, we got a whole bunch of machinery that's required just to baptize four or five people in our church. And if they're really in an upper room somewhere, I mean, where did the 3,000 people come from? But if they're coming out of temple, easily there's tens of thousands of people coming out of temple at that hour. But where would you baptize 3,000 people? Until I visited there 18 months ago. And right there on the temple, bottom right picture, is where they were probably preaching from. And if the camera zooms out just a bit like it is here, you'll see that just outside the steps are these artifact areas here, 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 and they continue on. And you know what is there? The top picture. Hundreds and hundreds of what are called mikvahs, baptism pools. Because as you traveled to Pentecost, as you traveled to Passover, you would have dirty feet and you'd want to get washed before you went into the temple. So when Peter is preaching and says 3,000 people responded and want to get baptized, guess what? There's a spot right there. Where 3,000 people could be baptized. And here's my point. If you're skeptical about the Bible, the archaeological evidence, when he claims something, you go, oh, this could happen. You begin to see it's got internal evidence, external evidence, the facts. They line up. What are the odds of of those numbers lining up 1,500 years later? What are the odds and chances of running the numbers on this? Astronomical. Which is why wherever you are in your faith journey, you can Bet on belief. If you're worried about what God's doing in your life right now and what the future holds for your kids, now they are out of college or out of high school, if you're worried about what the future holds for your marriage, you can bet on belief. Not because you feel it's true, but because it's factually true. If God could figure this out in the past, you can bet on belief he can figure out your future. If you're skeptical about the Bible, you don't have to check your brain at the door. Check out the facts of history. And you'll be able to bet on belief because it's grounded in the facts. If you wonder if change is possible in your life, in your marriage, in your family, historians tell us that the Romans who didn't give anything to anybody, that whole kingdom was turned upside down because 3,000 Jewish people changed their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday around 33 A.D. It's hard for me to get my family to change what day we celebrate Christmas. And 3,000 Jewish people started a wave of moving the day of worship from Saturday, which they had done for centuries, to Sunday. Now, Da Vinci Code, uh, Dan Brown would say, no, that didn't happen until 350 B.C. with Constantine. He's wrong. We have actual evidence, 70 A.D., 90 A.D., 125 A.D. I've shown them all in previous services. I won't do that today. That show that people have changed the day of worship What event could get 3,000 and plus Jewish people to change the day they worship from Saturday to Sunday, except that a guy came back from the grave on Sunday? You can bet on belief. And if God could change a whole culture, and God could bring hope and change to an entire empire that was very decadent, He can bring hope to your life. He can bring joy to your life. He can bring change to your life whatever it is, you go, it's not possible. I can't get there. I, I, I've just made too many promises and I'm broken. And, and, and you can bet on the belief that God can forgive you. Because for 1,500 years, the people missed him. Peter preaches a message to say, we killed him. God finally showed up and we killed him. But he still wants to forgive you. Bet on belief. And don't take my word for it. I've been reading a lot of Sir Isaac Newton recently because I'm a geek. Sir Isaac Newton, uh, you know, the father of physics, the father of uh, mathematics, the father of calculus. If you actually Google him, you can look at his archives of all his different writings on the different mathematical subjects. I mean, he literally, this guy invented calculus. And right in the middle of his archives, he's got a whole other section. He writes just as much about the Bible. And he needs a better PR agent because all we know is that an apple fell on his head. So he does need a better PR agent. I'll give him that he talks over and over about the same mathematical calculations that allowed him to develop calculus and engineering was just as true in the Bible's predictions of the Old Testament to the New. That's not me. I'm a pastor that's supposed to say this kind of stuff. That's Sir Isaac Newton. Or take Sir Robert Anderson. He worked for Scotland Yard. He was a detective in Scotland Yard. There's a prediction made with numbers back in the book of Daniel that says, we will tell you the very day the Messiah shows up. And it gives you a specific number. It says, on the day the Persians, who conquered the Babylonians in history, the day the Persians let the Jewish people return, from that day forward, you can add up the very number of years and the very number of days, and you'll know the exact day the Messiah shows up. So he got out his Jewish calendar, and it was a lunar calendar versus a solar. He took out all the days for leap year and calculated it all up. And from the time of the Persian edict... So, the time of Jesus appearing on the scene is exactly down to the very day predicted by Daniel hundreds of years in advance. In fact, he got, uh, he got knighted for that by the queen. He became Knight Sir Robert Anderson. You can bet on belief. And if you're skeptical, there's facts. If you're emotionally saying, have those moments, is this really true? I've sort of staked my whole life, my whole career, my whole eternity on this. It doesn't matter how you feel. As John Adams used to say, facts are stubborn things. There are facts to back up that God is trustworthy. There are facts to back up that Jesus who he says he was. There are facts to know that he can change and forgive your life. And when you come to grips with that, you can't help but tell other people. You want to not die on that day. You want to be baptized that day. And baptism is a, a picture of going under the water, meaning I died with Christ. My my wrongdoing was forgiven. It's buried in the grave. I'm free from shame. I'm free from guilt. And when you come up out of the water, it's a reminder that you're alive with Christ, that you're trusting Him. You have forgiveness. There's no condemnation. We have a baptism service coming up on June 22nd. Maybe for some of you, you want to do. You've been investigating for a while, and you're ready to say, I believe that. I want to go forward. We had a baptism service a few weeks ago. I'd like you to hear the story that Chris shared of what God has been doing as he's been exploring these facts at our church and a conclusion he's come to. Let's watch. We're just so honored to be part of these different ways that God works in different lives and different hearts. So Chris, what what's God done in your life that's brought you to this moment?
1: Well, uh I've been on a journey for forty two years and uh luckily I've never been alone. I've got a great family over there. Um and basically, uh, I was baptized in the Catholic Church when I was little, and I feel I'm so blessed, and I've been given so much. It wasn't my choice then, and as I get more good stuff, and I get my cup keeps running over, and I'm just so blessed, and I want it publicly in front of everybody, in front of my kids, so they see it. Just let the Lord know that wash away the flesh, so the spirit can rise. Mm. So in the last, uh, you know, couple of years, what has been catalyst that got drawing you to himself? Well, bringing me right to this moment right here. I woke up on a Sunday morning early, which is out of my character. I was having a bad day, and I said, I gotta get out of here. And my son Carson, he said, Dad, can I please come with you? I live right up here in Merrimack, so I was just driving. He came, he got in the car with me. We're driving, and I turn right up here on Newtown, and all of a sudden a police officer is going like this. I'm in a big line of traffic, so I pull in. And then one of these parking people helped me, that. <laughs> so I park right here. And my son says, "Dad, what are we doing?" I said, "It looks like we're going to church." <laughs>
0: and
1: I haven't missed it. Well, I will say I haven't missed a Sunday, but I haven't missed many Sundays. And look at me now. I'm just, <laughs> it's a great day. Wow. Wow. God works
0: in a mysterious ways. The my so last 18 months, what would you say? Uh, that you're most thankful to God has uh, enlightened, or, or brought to your attention, or most thankful what you've seen God do in your life.
1: I've just been so blessed and lucky for so long, and I don't feel like I've given back the way I should. I want to do more. This is just the first step. Mm-hmm. I want to let my wash away my sins, and I'm just I'm just glad to be here. Well.
0: Sounds like you already know the answer to this. But so do you believe in God the Father who makes the heavens and earth? Absolutely. And you believe in Jesus Christ who died for you on the cross? Yes, one hundred percent. And you believe in His Holy Spirit who comes and lives in you now? Yes, comes now. <laughs> that we baptize you now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. do that. Maybe today's the day you want to ask for more. You've had success, but you want significance. That As they are signs, there are facts. You're saying, well, I want that. I just want to give you a chance to respond to God. Just bet on belief today. If you want to bow your heads with me, I just give you a moment. And uh, maybe you want to say, God, I want to bet on belief. Maybe for you that means I am going to start investigating these facts. If nothing else, to prove Chad wrong, but I'm going to investigate these things. Some of you are saying, no, I'm there. God, I I believe it. I'm right now telling you, I bet on belief that you died for me. I'm betting that you're my ticket. Brothers, maybe hearing Chris's story, you're like, boy, that baptism seemed very genuine. And maybe you're saying, God, I'm going to do that. I want to get baptized. You want to tell God, God, I I want to do that publicly. Doesn't negate what my parents did to me. It actually fulfills what my parents did when I was an infant. Or maybe you're struggling with the future and you want to say, God, I'm betting on you. I worry, but I'm going to choose to start trusting you more. God, we thank you that you must be all powerful. You must be brilliant. You must be an incredible engineer to have figured out all the math and all the specifics for everything we described today. And so, God, we thank you for being a God of facts. We thank you for being a God of figures. We thank you for being a God who knew that we needed evidence to engage with you. But thank you especially for your forgiveness. And thank you especially for wanting to have a relationship with us. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, amen. Thanks for being here today. As you head out today, two things. One, we do a baptism service. If you're interested, you can drop in a card in the box. Two, you don't want to miss next week. It'll probably be a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It's one of the few chances anyone in the world has ever gotten to see a 1,500-old Torah scroll, actual authentic scroll, not behind glass. It will be rolled out here in the center aisle for us to see whether or not the Bible's really true. We'll get to see if there are really copying errors. We'll really get to see and examine the facts next week for Jewish Jesus. See you then. Thank you again.